0: A reading from 1 Samuel, beginning in the third chapter, the first verse. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. The Lamb of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel, and Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling it other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John.
0: Glory to you, Lord Christ.
1: The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. The gospel of the Lord.
0: Praise to you, Lord Christ.
1: I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When I looked at the scriptures appointed for this week, I was first of all drawn to our passage from 1 Samuel. I'm sure this doesn't surprise you. Y'all know I love me some Old Testament narrative. And this passage from 1 Samuel about the calling of Samuel was clearly appointed for today because of that element of calling that it shares with our gospel passage that we just heard from John 1 about Jesus' calling of Philip and Nathaniel, And we'll get more into them, Philip and Nathaniel, a little later on. But just as I'm sure it's natural for any of us to identify with Philip and Nathaniel in some way, at least, when we read that passage, you know, to sort of put ourselves in their shoes and consider Jesus' calling to us, and, and we should read it that way, I would guess we might be similarly prone to identify with Samuel in our Old Testament passage. As we see the Lord's love for him and God setting him apart to be used for his good purposes, God's good purposes. However, this passage from 1 Samuel does differ from the calling of Philip and Nathaniel in one particular way, at least, because in this instance, Samuel is called at the expense of somebody else, of Eli and his whole family. As we will get into, the Lord is essentially removing His blessing from the house of Eli and placing it upon Samuel. So as responsible readers of Scripture and humble followers of Christ, we want to be careful not to be too quick to identify solely with Samuel and to instead leave space and and have the humility to consider whether there could be any overlap between us and Eli. After all, like us, both Samuel and Eli are human. But also like us, both are also from among God's people in their respective historical contexts. So true humility on our part would demand that we remain open to the possibility that we can learn from both of them. So let's get into this. Just to give a little background, this chapter of 1 Samuel actually marks the beginning of a transition between two significant periods in Israel's history, the period of the judges and the period of Israel's monarchy, when it was a kingdom. Now, the period of judges is covered mostly in the book of Judges, and this period was one of the darker periods of Israel's history, which can really be summed up by this verse from the book of Judges that said, In those days Israel had no king, And all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So God's people during that period of of Israel's history would disregard God's law and then rebel into wickedness. And over and over again, there would be this cycle, right? Right? they they disregard God's law. They'd rebel into wickedness. God would respond to that by removing His protection from His people, which would lead Israel to uh, be attacked by you know some other tribe, typically, which would be painful enough for Israel to repent and turn back to God and ask for help. So God, in His steadfast love, would then raise up a judge, which is a tribal leader like Deborah or Gideon or Samson, to save his people and defeat their enemies. And this cycle happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Well, Eli and Samuel will be the last two judges. But You'll notice from our reading that Eli is also a priest. He's over the ritual worship of making sacrifices to God. Verse 3 says that at the temple... Uh, verse 3 says it was at the temple, but there there wasn't what we'd think of as a temple yet, right? It was really more of a, a tent of worship. It's kind of in that transition period between the tabernacle and when ultimately Solomon will build the temple. By the end of this passage, Samuel will succeed Eli as the last judge and a priest, but also as the first of many prophets to Israel during the 500 plus years that will come afterwards that Israel is a monarchy. So again, this, this passage is really a transition point in Israel's history, a significant one. But our passage opens with verse 1 telling us that Samuel is just a boy. Now this probably means he was a teenager. The word in Hebrew could refer to someone as old as 30 years old. But verse 1 also reminds us of what a dark time the period of Judges was spiritually with God's people prone to doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes. We learn in verse 1 that the word of the Lord was consequently, as a result of their disobedience, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And this seems to have been the case for Eli even, right? Right? When verse 2 tells us that Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, the writer's likely drawing a connection between Eli's physical blindness and his lack of spiritual discernment that we're going to learn about here. Eli is not a very good judge. In the previous chapter before 1 Samuel 3, in 1 Samuel 2, if we were to look back at it, we're told that Eli's two sons Hophni and Phinehas were, quote, worthless men who did not know the Lord. And that's kind of a problem because in those days, the priestly office was passed down in a family from one generation to the next, which means these guys are set to be, really set to replace Eli and be the the top dog, the top priest over the worship of Israel. Well, priest... Uh, Eli's sons abused their position as priests you know before this before what happens here they're they're kind of priests under Eli's authority and they abused their position as priests first priests were supposed to live off of a portion of the sacrifice people offered right people would bring their sacrifices which would be an animal and the the priest was supposed to to take a fork and take some for himself, that's how he was provided for, uh, his sustenance, and the rest would be sacrificed to the Lord. But Eli's sons would take more than was allotted, and they would take the choicest parts of the meat for themselves, essentially stealing from God. But in addition to that, Eli's sons also abused their power by laying with the women who served at the entrance of the tent. So back to our passage in chapter 3, the writer wants us to see Eli's sons in contrast to Samuel. Right? Samuel had been a sort of surrogate son of Eli's ever since Samuel's mother had dedicated him to serve the Lord. So while Eli's sons are sleeping with the temple virgins, verse 3 of our chapter describes Samuel sleeping where? Next to the ark of God. We're, we're supposed to see that contrast. Now the heart of this passage, or at least the most memorable part to most people, is the back and forth that takes place in the middle, beginning at verse 4, where God calls to Samuel, but Samuel doesn't really know the voice of the Lord, so he thinks it's Eli calling, and it takes four tries, and Eli advising Samuel before Samuel figures out that this voice is the Lord's. So that's kind of what's most memorable about this passage, And yet I'm more interested in these circumstances around God calling Samuel and removing his blessing from Eli's house. Moving down to verse 10, that's what God explains to Samuel on the fourth try when he's finally, okay, God's standing before me. God tells Samuel that he plans to fulfill on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Back in chapter 2, God had told Eli himself of his plans to, to punish Eli and his household forever for the iniquity that, that Eli knew and for not restraining them. Eli had rebuked his sons for their fornication, but he didn't inhibit them from continuing to steal the Lord's sacrifices. Eli enforced no consequence. Why? Well, the reason he didn't have any, enforce any consequence on his sons is because of his idolatry of his sons. Let me say, wait a second, idolatry? These are his kids. But we're guilty of idolatry, not just when we love the wrong things, but when we love the right things too much when we love them more than we love God. And that's precisely what God says Eli has done. He's honored his sons more than he's honored God. And so as a result of this lack of accountability to God, and I'm not even talking about his son's lack of accountability. I'm talking about Eli's lack of accountability, his idolatry of his son's. Because of this, God decides to abandon his promise to use Eli's household for his purposes and chooses to appoint Samuel instead. So what are we to make of this? Well, the warning here is that if we partition off any part of our lives to not be accountable to God for how we conduct ourselves, if we take his name in vain and use it for evil, we should expect this to hinder our usefulness to him and his kingdom. But we should also know that it will cause great damage to us and to others, just as Eli and his son's conduct did. Therefore, this story of Eli and his sons should spur all of us to be vigilant in making the whole of our lives accountable to God trying to root out any blind spots on that we may have. So for the rest of my time today, I want to talk about how we can remain accountable to God, particularly in our commitment to the truth. How can we remain accountable to seeking the truth? The reason I want to focus on that is because what we believe to be true informs all the actions that we take. And if we believe falsehoods, the consequences of believing those falsehoods can be truly grave for us and for others. You know, in the past 50 years or so, there have been many cultural issues where believers in the church have been challenged to decide where they and it, the church, stands. These issues include issues of of gender, race, and sexuality including divorce and remarriage, same-sex marriage, interracial marriage, ordination of women to the diaconate, to the priesthood. These include issues of life and death including legislation concerning abortion or the death penalty, stem cell research and vaccines. And in just the past year, at least four significant cultural issues have bubbled to the surface. These include questions of racial injustice, the idol of Christian nationalism or heresy, the balance between loving our neighbor and religious freedom in response to the pandemic, and finally, the Internet As we've found this year more than ever, the internet has led to an explosion in the acceptance of conspiracy theories for Christians of all stripes. Now, it'll probably relieve you that it's not my goal today to tell anyone what to believe about any of these issues I've just listed. Now, I may speak at other times on what I believe to be the biblical mandate on some of these issues, and on many of them I have spoken in the past. But today, instead, I hope I've convinced you so far that caring about the truth, however inconvenient or uncomfortable it could be, like it was for Eli, that it matters. So with the time I have left, I want to consider how we might live in a manner that will lead us into greater truth, right? We all have blind spots in our lives. There are... Every single one of us has falsehoods that we adhere to. So how can we ignore, organize our lives in such a manner that will lead us into greater truth? We're all going to claim that we care about the truth. But how can we be sure we haven't resorted to simply what is right in our own eyes or someone else's eyes? How can we live more in what's true to God's Now, just to share a little bit about myself, I mean, discerning truth from falsehood, I guess it is kind of a particular passion of mine, some of you may have noticed. In part, this is because there have been, frankly, multiple occasions in my own past where I have been devastated to realize I had been operating with a blind spot to the truth where I believed that what I was doing was good and even was what God would have me do. And it may have even been consistent with the dominant Christian culture around me, only to find that I had been led astray by lies and that I had left great harm in my wake to myself and to others as a result. Some of these lies may have come from being raised in a culture of law and order Christianity like I talked about last week, external behaving in a moral fashion externally without being concerned about the inner heart. I've also had powerful people in my life play the God card on me, claiming things were God's will that I later realized were quite at odds with Christ's character. And I found myself vulnerable, frankly, to some conspiracy theories at times in my life. Now, I have confessed and been forgiven for all these things that I've recognized, and I've made amends where appropriate. But I never, I never want to cease to assume that I may hold to some falsehoods that I am blind to I never want to cease to seek to to understand what those could be and to root them out, because I've lived the other way. So how can we do this? How can we construct our lives in this way and not presume to be infallible or certain about everything? There's a real idol of certainty in the church today. We all have to know everything exactly, like there's no mystery left. How can we live instead in a manner that will lead us into greater truth and build in checks and balances against the possibility of calling evil good and calling good evil? Well, to understand how, I want to briefly turn to our gospel passage and consider how Nathaniel in particular was in a position to receive an epiphany of the truth. In his case, the ultimate epiphany, that Jesus is the Christ. Though it wouldn't be his last epiphany, I guarantee you that. Now ironically, I have to confess, ironically, this is a passage that I believe now that I've interpreted wrongly in the past in a sermon I preached, which one of our postulants recently helped me to see. For more on that, you'll have to read my footnotes. This passage on John records Jesus' calling of his fourth and fifth disciples. The day before, Jesus had called the first three, John, Andrew, and Simon Peter. And in our passage opens saying the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. That was easy enough. Then in verse 45, Philip, After having followed Jesus, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip's appeal to Nathanael is on the basis of the Hebrew Scriptures, notice. Our Old Testament. Which indicates that prior to this epiphany, to this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, both Philip and Nathaniel had both been seeking the truth and opening themselves to God's revelation through the scriptures. Right? Or else he wouldn't have appealed to that common, commonality they had. Well, this explains verse 46 where Nathaniel retorts, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, this is often taught as a snide remark, and perhaps it is. But first and foremost, Nathaniel is probably making the point that there is no prophecy about the Messiah coming from Nazareth in these scriptures they've been searching. Bethlehem, yes, there's a prophecy about that, but not Nazareth. Of course, we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem and just grew up in Nazareth. They don't know that. So Philip says to him, come and see. And when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, I don't want to nerd out too much on Scripture here, but any of you who were here for our series on Jacob or who just know the story of Jacob will remember that God eventually gave Jacob the name Israel, right? But Jacob's original name, Jacob, really meant deceiver or trickster. So Jesus here is essentially saying, Behold, a descendant of the deceivers who's not deceptive right which reminds us actually reminded me of the character of Samuel right despite all the wickedness around Samuel he was this person of character somehow some way god's grace so nathaniel says to jesus how do you know me and jesus answers before philip called you when you were under the fig tree i saw you Now when I preached on this three years ago, I suggested that what Nathaniel had been doing under the fig tree was something untoward, which is why he converts so quickly in the next verse. But with some help from Dolores, I've since learned there is evidence that sitting under a fig tree was a euphemism for reading scripture, even tied back to the tree of life in the garden of Eden, kind of eating of its fruit. So when Nathaniel responds with a declaration of faith, right, in verse 49, he's actually quoting from Scripture. He's quoting from verses 6 and 7 of the psalm we read this morning, Psalm 2, about the Messiah, right? He's saying, hey, that was you. I'm looking at you now. You're the one Psalm 2 is about. And then Jesus finishes the passage by drawing on another Jacob reference, that we don't need to get into today but what puts nathaniel in a position to receive this epiphany of the truth well first nathaniel is not operating as if he's got everything figured out as if he knows it all right no nathaniel is seeking he has some humility right we might say he's seeking revelation in the scriptures As I alluded to earlier one of the issues plaguing much of the church today is the idol of certainty right Christians have been given the impression frankly that they have to know it all that somehow there's salvation in that I guess I don't know and so mystery has been stripped from God and this has taught Christians to approach cultural issues with a level of certainty that frankly often verges on arrogance right And again, I have compassion toward it because there are whole church traditions that are teaching Christians to kind of behave this way. But what do you imagine would be the fruit if Christians rejected the idol of certainty about everything and instead sought to cultivate the virtue of curiosity? Curiosity about the truth, about themselves, about their fellow man. I bet the fruit would be better. I bet God could defend the truth plenty. So that's number one. But by reading the scripture, number two, Nathaniel puts himself in a good position to receive God's further revelation. This is not dissimilar in kind of a fun way to how Samuel was in a good position to receive a vision from God. Why? Because he's taking a nap next to the ark, Right? Well, again, to contrast this to today, the average Christian in America spends one to two hours a week under the teaching of the church, but multiple hours every day being discipled by cable news television and social media. Some reports are that some Christians watch as much as 13 hours of cable news television a day. God help us. I don't know, am I even awake for 13 hours a day? Just have it on, though, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not judging. I'm just saying, God help us. Right? The reason that's a problem is because cable news television doesn't profit off of the truth. I don't care what side of the aisle or whatever your channel's on. It doesn't profit off the truth. It profits off of provoking fear, hatred, and anxiety. And you know what does that? Half-truths and untruths, falsehoods. And in social media, it's just becoming increasingly difficult to discern truth from falsehood through those mediums. So that's the second thing. Nathaniel puts himself in a good position to receive God's further revelation. Third, both Nathaniel and Samuel clearly value the truth more than they value maintaining any sort of status quo. And following this encounter, Nathaniel will root up his whole life to follow Jesus. And Samuel, Samuel knows that after he goes to Eli and tells Eli what the Lord has said, Samuel knows that their relationship, the surrogate father of his, their relationship will never be the same. That's why it says he's afraid, but he does it. Right? right? Courage is fear that said its prayers, I guess. But unlike Eli, Samuel is committed to honoring and being accountable to God over avoiding conflict with his fellow man. Right? Now, to, to take this into today, I, I don't want to offend anybody, but I'll just share that as a pastor, it is an immediate red flag to me when somebody declares themselves to be first and foremost either a liberal or a progressive or a conservative. When somebody declares that to be their primary identity, I get little antennas that go up, right? Again, it's not, a, it's not about judgment because I've been there and I've lived a lot of my life there. I know that being conservative or liberal or progressive, these can be relative terms. But we have to be clear that as followers of Jesus, we are first and foremost citizens of His kingdom. We are people of the kingdom. And the values of that kingdom can overlap with these secular ideologies. Absolutely. But if our truth, our truth... Everybody's got their truth these days. If our truth is in lockstep with the Democrats or the Republicans or any other worldly ideology, we are surely part of the problem and not part of God's solution. And frankly, we are courting the legacy of Eli. Let us be people of the kingdom. Which is not of this world, as Jesus said. So Nathaniel and Samuel value the truth more than the status quo of this world. Finally, what is obvious about Nathaniel and Philip is that they're in relationship with each other. They're friends, right? But more particularly, they are friends seeking to discern truth together. And not on their own, right? You just do it on your own, it's gonna be whatever you think is right in your own eyes. I mean, the, it's never gonna end well, right? So they aren't seeking to discern truth on their own. They clearly have been seeking it together, right? Which is a, an enormously important safeguard. Because all of us are gonna be susceptible to being blinded, frankly, by the lenses of our own woundedness. And so discerning truth not on our own but in godly community is indispensable if we want to be people of the truth. If we don't want to be living according to what's right in our own eyes, we have to start finding a few friends who are also seekers of the truth and not ideologues with whom we can... I'm talking about people with whom we can not only dialogue and exchange ideas, but who will give us feedback that we will actually take seriously and listen to, That who will tell us when, when we're off. I have many such relationships that I'm telling you, I, I don't know where I would be without them. It wouldn't be sitting right here. Some of these relationships are in the parish, some aren't. People who as recently as this week called me out and said, Hey, Is that really, is that attitude really consistent with the heart of Christ? We all need that. I have learned so much and entered entered more and more into the truth and therefore into such greater freedom because of these dear truth seekers in my life. I thank God for them. So I'll close by saying that. You know, I, I know it can be scary to examine long-held beliefs and positions that we've frankly staked a good bit of our identity on and our pride on. I, I hear you. I've done it. But I promise that the consequences, if we're unwilling to examine those, will be so much greater for us than the discomfort and the humbling experience of saying, you know what, maybe I was wrong. About this, that, and the other. It's no fun to be an Eli, whether we know we're being one or not. To be honest, it's enslavement. But Jesus taught that the truth, the truth will set us free. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.